We hear a lot of perspectives on the Mankind Podcast. Inclusion of a guest is not an endorsement of their views, and the opinions expressed here do not always represent the mission or values of the Mankind Project USA. Looks like the rain has gone. Hey everybody, it's Boysen Hodgson with the Mankind Podcast. What's the cost of trauma? And how does trauma show up in our society in deeply rooted racial and social challenges? And what can we do about it? How much time have you spent thinking about how trauma and the prison system and the 13th Amendment are related? This hour-long conversation with Samuel Nathaniel Brown and Jamelia Land is the most intense episode of the podcast that I've recorded. Both Samuel and Jamelia share their different experiences growing up black in America, how they learn to view the people around them, their parents, authority, law enforcement, social systems. We hear about where this led them, the impacts it had on them, and the movements it has brought them both to be part of. In the first part of the episode, you'll hear about the theory of emotional illiteracy-based criminality, which is something that Samuel created. You'll hear what it is, how it came to be, what he hopes the future might hold for us and our kids and our society. And in the second part of this episode, You'll hear a way of thinking about the Civil War, about the end, question mark, of slavery, about the 13th Amendment, and the prison system in California and in the United States of America that will probably challenge you. This intense conversation is not from a place of distance, but a look from the inside out, from a man who was incarcerated in the California prison system. At the time of this recording, Samuel had been free from incarceration for less than 40 days. And from his wife, Jamelia, a woman who has been an activist in helping to end violence and as a champion of human rights since she was a little girl. Listen to this episode only if you're ready to hear unapologetic voices for change, fundamental change in how we raise human beings to be emotionally literate adults how we can change the criminal justice system, how we can change our relationships and heal together, and how to change our legal frameworks. In Samuel's own words, this is an opportunity for us to evolve in our shared humanity as a collective. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome back to the Mankind Podcast, where we're setting out to prove that there's more than one way to be a man. In today's recording, I'm speaking with Samuel Nathaniel Brown and Jamelia Land. And I'm not even going to say anything right now, but why don't you guys just say hello and then I'll tell the audience a little bit more about you. Go ahead, baby. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for having us, Boyson. Yeah, thank you for having us, Boyson. My name is Samuel Nathaniel Brown. This is my wife and Jamelia Land, and we're happy to be here. Thank you. 
So I'm going to read about Jamelia first. So Jamelia is the ASAP, the ASAP co-founder. Jamelia Land is a community trauma engagement specialist who works with people in communities impacted by systemic racism, economic injustice, and adverse childhood experiences. We're going to come back to that again and again. Her work includes lobbying the California state legislature legislature supporting survivors of police and community violence, organizing direct action, speaking on panels, and otherwise demanding peace, prosperity, and justice. Jamelia chairs the California Abolition Act Coalition and previously served with coalitions that passed criminal justice reform legislation in California, including SB 1421, SB 1436, AB 392, and Prop 17. Samuel Nathaniel Brown is a philosopher, a spoken word poet, we'll talk about that, an organizer. His theory of emotional illiteracy-based criminality posits that addressing adverse childhood experiences and providing social-emotional learning can help people overcome or avoid criminality and realize their fullest potential as human beings. Sam's work includes the 10P Project, the Boys to Men Workshop, Survivor Offender Mediation Seminar, and the Brain Project, which are offered at multiple California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation facilities. He is currently collaborating on restorative justice-based programs with leaders at NASA, CSU Sacramento, and McGeorge School of Law. And if that ain't enough, so I'll the tiny background story is there's a guy out there named Jan Hutchins who I've known for, I don't know, a dozen years or so. And Jan hook, hooked up with me on Messenger and said, I want to introduce you to Samuel Nathaniel Brown. Threw me a couple of links, one of which included a piece of spoken word. Samuel and I connected uh, less than a week later, and here we are talking again and we'll come back to how this conversation really goes but first let's start with a brief background and uh jamelia why don't we have you go first because you and i haven't had a chance to hang out so what else do you want to say besides what's in your incredible bio okay so i um i was born and raised in oakland california um, my mother and my father are original members of the Black Panther Party. They were also heavily involved in the Nation of Islam. Um, I am my father's only living child. <clears throat> so I, I came up with my father kind of as an only child. Um, my grandparents migrated here. My father's parents migrated here from Texas um, in the late 30s. Um, my mother's family migrated here from Louisiana in the mid 40s. Um, my parents were were in their 40s when they had me, so you know I came up I came up with a, an older demographic, um, and you know pretty much I, I saw them fight for the people. They you know they had community meetings in the house. There were community gardens. It was. Um, you know, taking care of taking care of the neighbors. My grandmother was like the grand matriarch of the community. She had multiple rental properties. Um, but I had this interesting duality in life where I I attended a predominantly white school. I took violin and piano lessons. I went to debutante balls, 
Um, but I was in the hood with the people on crack and on heroin and the teenage moms, um, you know, and I saw the pressures there. And my grandmother was very intentional about um, how she raised me and my and my father. They were, you know, they were very, very uh, influential in my life. And so my father had a restaurant called My Favorite Things and... My first my first real experience with advocacy was actually with my father. Um, I was 10 years old and he was out sweeping the street in front of his restaurant when one of his friends by the name of Dupree came running around the corner and behind him was a police officer by the name of Trackstar. And Dupree was recently released from prison um, and he ran into my father's restaurant. My father ran behind him. He locked the door and Trackstar was on his heels. And my father, that was the first time I had heard of like a sanctuary and that he was using his restaurant as a sanctuary. And um, he refused to let Trackstar in. And that was the first time that I personally experienced police brutality. And um, it was also the first time that I ever saw my father afraid. Um, and so that kind of just sparked something in me. Um, then there was the earthquake of 89 uh, when the freeway collapsed. My mother took me out there. I had no idea. Let's see, I was born in 75. So, you know, in 89, um, I'm out there. And at the time, we thought my father, because he traveled to Cyprus frequently, we thought that my father might have been trapped out there. Um, I didn't learn this until later on, uh, but we went out there and that was the first time that I experienced dead bodies. Um, I smelled bodies. I mean, cars had been crushed to the size of, you know, a circle, just completely unbelievable. Um, and that was the first time that I went literally scouring through, you know, concrete and metal and, and looking for people and hearing people scream and, you know, um, just felt like I was in a war zone. But the way that my mother handled it, um, I didn't realize that she was teaching me to, you know, like really go into the community and engage trauma that way. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've had an interesting background. Um, I have lost six Four nephews, a niece, and a daughter-in-law, all to community gun violence, um, all out of Oakland. None of them made it to be 23 years old, shot and killed by somebody who looked like them. A couple of years ago, my four-year-old great-nephew got a hold of a handgun, shot himself in the forehead. Um, by the grace of God, he lived. Um, and so I've seen a lot of violence, and I have had to walk family um, and friends and community through this type of violence. Um and it's become normalized. And it wasn't really until Samuel and I, by the grace of God, connected that I I had I then had an understanding of what it was. He was he helped me to be able to put words to and explain like scientifically um, what it was I had been experiencing and I had been seeing that I just could not articulate in the way that that he did. And so. You know, I hope that gives you a little bit of background. Uh, yeah. Wow. Oh, and then I, I forgot the part about the police violence. So I also walk hand in hand with family members. Um, I've been the spokesperson for high profile police killings. Um, one very specifically was the Stefan Clark shooting in Sacramento. Um, and I think what was so unique about that is that I was literally caught between um, 
two high profile cases at the time. My son, Elijah and Stefan were friends. My son, Elijah at the time was being prepared for trial for a triple homicide that he didn't commit. He is now currently serving three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Um, and Stefan was shot and killed by a Sacramento police officer. And the chief of police happens to be uh, a very good and close friend of mine. And so navigating the space between the community, community violence, police violence, um, sexual assaults and violence, uh, you know, gang killings of children, drive-bys, all of these things. Um, this is this is my life. This is my work. This is what I do. So. And you kind of started to segue into Samuel, but first, like, how old were you when you and Samuel met? I don't know. You don't ask a black woman how old she is. <laughs> no, back no, back no, back then. I'm using all my products. I'm still trying to look youthful. Um, I was a little over 40. Okay. Okay. Just a tad. Just a tad. So, Samuel, let's now let's go to you. So Jamelia kind of thinks that you have something magical about you. So tell me about you. Oh, she doesn't get out much. Um, so I was, so today, you know what? I'm going to start from the beginning and come to the end. How about that? I'm originally from New Orleans, right? And I grew up in the ninth ward of Hurricane Katrina fame. You know, prior to Hurricane Katrina, the ninth ward was abandoned. No one cared about it. It was like a third world country to me. I felt like where I grew up was like Kenya or Somalia or any of the places that I used to see on TV, like Ethiopia, because I, I grew up around a bunch of poor black people that it seemed like the whole world forgot about. Our community was poor. The housing was run down. The biggest housing projects in the United States, the Desire Projects, is where I played at. Um, and my neighborhood was predominantly black. So um, I grew up raised by a single mom. My pops left when I was seven years old. And um, my mom was a devout Christian. She, she introduced me to the knowledge of God, which is the most precious gift that anyone's ever given me. You know, because it sustained me through all the years and the trials and tribulations that I would eventually encounter over the course of my life. And um, eventually, at 14 years old, I moved to California. I didn't want to move to California. You know, my mom moved here when I was 13 and I refused to come initially. Um, But so I was homeless, bouncing from one relative's house to the other relative's house. As long as I stayed in school, I kept a job. I could live with them. But my summer job ran out and I got expelled from school on the first day. So there went my places to stay. I had nowhere to live anymore. And so I was faced with a choice. I could either be a transient or take my ass to California. Then I seen this movie called Colors and Colors represented like, you know, the gang lifestyle out here in California. Once I saw that, I was like, I cannot leave my sisters and my mom out there with no man in the house. Nobody to protect them. So that was really like the the final straw. So at 14 years old, I hopped in a station wagon with my Uncle Alfred and his family. And we moved to California, to Sacramento. And it was a culture shock. You know, I had never seen anything like that. The the neighborhoods looked much nicer than what I was accustomed to. Um, 
there was so many, it was so multicultural that I was a mute for at least the first year. You know, I had never seen Tongans and Samoans and Laotians and Cambodians and, you know, West Indians and, and Native Americans. I was more accustomed to like, you know, Jamaicans and Hondurans and whites, blacks and Vietnamese, you know, for the most part, a couple of Cubans. And everybody that wasn't white identified with being black in New Orleans. That's how I grew up. You know, um, my entire community was black. The the police officers were not all black, of course. They were white patrolling black neighborhoods. But the crack dealer, the crack addict, the preacher, the the professionals, the the people that ran the moms and pop stores, everybody was black. My teachers, my classmates. So when I come to Sacramento. And I see little white girls with like tank tops and wife beaters on and blue rags hanging out their pocket talking about, what's up, cuz? I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> it was a real culture <laughs> shock, right? Blew my, blew my wig back, you know, um, to see, I had never met any Mexicans before. So to see the, you know, the Mexican guys running around with the blacks and everybody and having their own cultures and doing their own thing, it was just a culture shock for me. So for the first year I didn't talk, plus they made fun of my accent. So, Long story short, um, within six years of arriving to California, um, well, let's back up a little bit since we've been candid here. When I first arrived there, I was getting to know the area, so I would ride my bicycle. And I had an ID that reflected the neighborhood that I lived in. I lived in G Parkway on the street, so my ID literally said G Parkway on it. And I recall one day riding my bike through a neighbor, another neighborhood that was not G Parkway, and this police officer pulled me over, and he demanded to see my ID. And so I showed him my ID, and he looked at my ID, and he said, oh, you one of them G Parkway niggas. And this was a white officer, and I was 14 years old, and that was a real culture shock. That was, that was like, that was, that was traumatizing for me. You know, this white, this is an adult. This white male, and he's a police officer, and he just called me a nigga to my face. And he was like, what are you doing over here? You know, you don't belong over here. I said, I'm just riding my bike. And he said, don't ever bring your black ass over here again. I will arrest you. Stay on your side. And I told him, I said, "That's I don't even like that neighborhood. I don't even want to be in California. I don't like none of this stuff. But he he insisted, you know what I'm saying, that I need to stay in that community and not be caught on my bike ever again over there. So that occurred. Then when I was 16, there was another officer, um, 15, excuse me, 15, there was another officer named uh, Fonsworth who seen, who, who responded to a call of two males inside of an abandoned house breaking windows and glasses and mirrors and stuff, because that's what me and my buddy were doing. We were in an abandoned house, letting out some of our angst and anger, and we were breaking like mirrors and things of that nature, and he snuck in and he caught us. And he put the gun to my head and he was like, drop the bat, I'll blow your fucking head off, you know? So I, I'm like, okay. And then he takes me outside and he puts us inside the police car. And when he gets us in the police car, he say, hey, you're new around here. Neither one of you guys are from here because my buddy was from Chicago. And he was like, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive you all around in this car. Um, he said, no, he said, from now on, you're going to be informants for me. You're going to tell me everything that's going on in the neighborhood, who's selling dope, who's committing crimes or whatever. And he said, we're not going to do that. He said, oh, you're going to do it 
or I'm going to put you in the back of my car and drive you around the neighborhood for an hour pointing at people pretending that you're giving me information. We said we're not going to do it. He, so he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He put us in the back seat of that patrol car and he drove around past all the gang members and, and, the, and the dope spots and everything, pointing at people as if he was talking to us. And we would just lay there in the back seat with our heads against the windows of the car. And then he pulled up like an hour later in front of a bunch of Crips. And he was like, so I'm about to put y'all out in front of them and give you a $5 bill and say thanks for the information. So we was like, all right, all right, all right. We'll do whatever you want us to do. So he drove us, dropped us off. We gave him alias names. And then from that point forward, anytime Fonsworth would see us, he would call us Greg. And I forgot what my buddy said his name was. But we would run. And so... The significance of that story is the first white person that called me a nigga to my face was the police, a white guy, a cop. And then I started running from the police because of this white guy, a cop, who tried to make me into an informant and didn't threaten my entire life. You know, and that's significant when we talk about 15, 15 14 and 15 years old. And, and before then, I never had a criminal record. Never been to juvenile hall, none of that. No, but this type of stuff is significant when we talk about, you know, cause of the factors that lead people to adopting criminality. So at that point, I just started hanging with all the people from the neighborhood because I rather identify with them than identify with the police. So by the time I arrived there when I was 14, by the time I was 16, I was facing two life sentences and 40 years in prison. And um, I got convicted. And so as of today, I've only been out of prison for 36 days and I served 24 years. And now I'm here talking to you alongside my wife. Thank you. Sixteen years old, 24 years now out. 30 something days. So this kind of leads right into where we're, where we're headed. What did you start to learn inside and what did you, what kind of awoke, what woke up in you inside that led to where you are now? And we're going to get into some of the stuff that you're doing, but how did that transformation start to happen to you? Thank you. That's a great question. So people that I cared about began dying a lot. Um, excuse me. Sorry. People that I cared about began dying, right? And I lost my father. I lost my uncle that drove me to California. His wife, she passed away. I lost a few of my cousins. I lost my other auntie. All of, so it was a lot of death. It was certainly involved. That's one. But two, from the moment that I stepped inside of the prison, there were two different forces that I was greeted by. One force was, here's a knife. Here's some weed. Here's some alcohol. Keep your eyes open, mouth shut, 10 toes to the ground, and be cool. You know, be ready for whatever might kick off. Kill or be killed. But until then, stay high. You know, then there was this other element of brothers who was like, here's a book. 
It's, it's on history. Here's a book that's on spirituality. Here's a pen and pad. Write and get knowledge yourself. So those are the two elements that I was greeted with. And for quite some time, I embraced both. Mm. I embraced both. I mean, I had no choice but to to be military minded in order to survive my environment, first and foremost. So immediately I, I, I adopted to carry in the knife or the knives, you know, to learn how to make the knives, to defend myself the whole nine. I sought the substance abuse. You know, as as a coping mechanism, because I was given life in prison and I didn't think I was ever going to get out. You know, when I got arrested and locked up back in 1997, life meant life. They were not letting people with life out. So the only path that I had to being released was to file an appeal and get my case overturned. Right. But aside from that, I also read a lot of books. You know, my autodidactic studies were about knowledge itself. I read The Making of the Black Man by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, um, Lerone C. Bennett Jr., Before the Mayflower, um, Now Valley Contributions to Civilization by Anthony Browder, The ISIS Papers by Francis Cress Wilson. And I would just feast on these books, The Philosophies and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. And so I was just digesting them and feasting on them, just eating them, you know, and sitting there on lockdown. Because the prison that I was in, we was on lockdown for like a year to begin with. And so I had nothing else to do but exercise, smoke, drink, and read. <laughs> that was it. And so having that instilled in me from my mom before I went to the prison, that I, you know, that I was somebody important, but I didn't hear her back then. I didn't hear my mom when she was telling me because I, I was missing my father and I, I needed a male presence in my life. So Despite my mom lifting me up and encouraging me, I couldn't hear it, right? But once I was in the prison, surrounded by a bunch of other males like myself, the seed that my mom planted began to be watered, you know, and the spirit of God that was in me began to to speak to me and telling me that I'm so much more than my current circumstance. So over the years, despite that, I, I, I still continue to make bad decisions for like the first decade that I was in prison. I also continue to educate my mind. Education is a powerful transformative tool, boys. So I continue to educate myself. And so that laid a solid foundation for me. And at some point, I got into a college program. And getting into that college program, I began to, to study all manner of topics and disciplines that I wasn't privy to before. And it was a social science degree. So, no, that was a wide array of different, you know, yes. yeah, it was a wide array of topics and, and books and, and disciplines. So it was just incredible for me. And it was just opening my eyes. And then when you coupled that with my personal studies, it, it really touched me. It did something for me. It helped me to evolve. And so in addition to that, I, I studied Sikhism, Jainism, Catholicism, mm. Buddhism, mm. Um, Islam, Christianity. I studied all the religions as well. Five percenters, you know, you name it. And so all of these different studies, somehow it was taking root. It was doing something to me. It was transforming me. It was molding my mind and my spirit and my body into something that I, I didn't know was in there. And so um, to answer your question, that's what laid the foundation for my transition. 
was constantly learning and and not just accepting that I was what people told me that I was, which was just that nigga or, or nothing. You know, despite my worst circumstance, I still knew that there was something greater in me and that there was a higher calling on my life. I hope you're enjoying the Mankind Podcast. The Mankind Project supports all kinds of men with men's groups and programs aimed at building self-awareness, improving relationships, and upping your game. If you're ready to take that next step and you're a man of color, check out the men's work for BIPOC men at bit.ly forward slash men's work three. Because I want to keep bringing Jamelia's voice into the room. So a couple of things that I've heard are the power of matriarchs. And the two of you. So I heard what you said and I won't repeat it back on how old you were when you met. And how did you two end up together? Like, how did that happen? So I was... At the time, working with Senator Nancy Skinner. So let me back up a little bit. I had left California um, about two years prior to us meeting. Um, I was in Atlanta. I was working. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of branding and PR work for a, a large three three letter entertainment um, <clears throat> company, and I got a phone call that my son was on the news and that he had been arrested for a triple homicide. Um, and now I'm back up a little because Elijah is not my biological son. Elijah is a foster child that I took in and adopted. And so I got this call that he was on the news. Um, I knew that he had no one. His birth mother had abandoned him at the age of 10 he was on the streets until he was the age of 16 when California's foster care finally got him. And I got him at 17, uh, just months before turning 18. And so I knew he had no one. And I literally opened my front door, went next door, told my neighbor that, you know, I'm getting ready to haul tail back to California. You guys can have anything in here you want. I gave away every piece of furniture that I had. Um, and I, I packed up myself, the girls, um, and at the time, my father, um, I had, when I relocated, when I moved to Georgia, I took my, he was in his late 70s at that point, 70-year-old father, um, and my mother. And so um, my, father, my mother and my father stayed behind. I came back to California, um, and I was at a rally one day for SB 1437. Um, at the time, I was working with Senator Skinner and the coalition to change California's felony murder law. Um, and it was it was very important to me because I knew that this new piece of legislation very well could be the key to save Elijah's life. And so I was, um, I was at the rally and I got up and I spoke. And when I was done, a gentleman came over to me and he said, hey, you know, I know your son and I knew Stefan. And he said, you know, go to the go to the jail. Um, tell your son that, you know, you met me. Here's my information. You know, give me a call. I want to help. And, you know, I was just like, eh, 
I don't want to be bothered, you know, whatever guy. Um, but I did go to the, excuse me, to the jail. I visited with my son and I told him, I said, hey, you know, I just met this guy. And he goes, oh my God, mom, really? Like, he's out, he's out, he's out. I'm like, he's out. He was in a three-piece suit looking like a pimp from Augustus, Georgia and some bad shoes. <laughs> I said, so what you mean he's out? He said, yeah, mom. And so he goes, you know, this guy, he's really solid and blah, 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 blah. You know, he's... He's helped me walk through some stuff. You know, he just got finished doing life. I can't believe he's out. And so I was just kind of floored. Uh, long story short, fast forward, this gentleman um, introduced me to Sam. And um, we initially connected on we were going to fight to get him free, right? Um, and what I didn't realize was that the fight was to get me free that though he had been physically incarcerated, he was freer in his mind than I was, and that I was physically free in the world, but I was trapped in the cages of my mind and my pain and my childhood trauma. And so um, God brought us together via another former lifer. Um, and while I thought I was gonna be helping him, um, to free him. He was helping me to free myself and to fight for my son. So that's how, that's how we came together. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'm just going to keep breathing and asking questions and let the magic, let this happen. So now Samuel after hearing Jamelia say that you freed her and we've touched on childhood trauma and adverse childhood experiences, and now I'll hit the video. So the video will be in the link to this episode. I want you to go and watch the video, the theory of emotional illiteracy based criminality. Samuel, tell me about the theory of emotional illiteracy based criminality. Okay. Um, well, as you know, I did a spoken word piece on it. And if you could share it with the people, that would be a delight, right? <laughs> yes, look down below. It'll be in the links below. Got you. And so the theory of emotional literacy-based criminality is the culmination of my lived experience wrapped up and delivered to the world as my way of saying I apologize for all the harm that I've did when I didn't know who I was. You know, it's my attempt to help other people heal and they help the rest of the world understand, you know, the thesis of it is no one is born a criminal. No one is born a pimp or a player or a hustler or a whore or a gang member or a drug dealer. When none of us are born or racist, no one is born these things. These are things that people are taught. These are behaviors that people adopt as coping mechanism for unprocessed traumas. And so the theory of emotional literacy-based criminality stemmed from me not only observing myself and seeking to be better understood, but also observing the men that I was surrounded by and even the women who I know who are incarcerated and wanting the world to understand that all of us are born emotionally literate children. And at some point we experience trauma and the way we define trauma in the Anti-Violence Safety and Accountability Project ASAP and the 10P program is 
trauma is an event or an occurrence that causes people to see the world and themselves in relation to the world differently from the way that they saw it before the event took place. Because that's what trauma does. And so before that trauma, people weren't, you know, thinking about harming others in order to feel good about themselves. They weren't, they weren't smoking, they weren't drinking. Something took place that led them to adopt these type of behaviors as coping mechanisms. And that is what I seek to have the world understand with the theory of emotional literacy-based criminality. So when I put the poem together, I just wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture that and really get people to understand, you know, um, when you see a gang member or a group of gang members, it's not necessarily that they started out just as these evil, bad people, but you might have this guy's daddy was smoking crack. This guy's mom was an alcoholic. This kid was getting molested inside the home. This person's parents were missing. This guy over here was told that he was stupid and worthless. This little girl was being taken advantage of. And so they don't find it's not safe for them in their houses often. They don't feel welcome. They don't feel loved. They don't feel appreciated. And so then they step outside the house and they find somebody else that has similar traumas to them. And then they bond in those traumas. They bond in those traumas around a, a, a bottle of liquor. They bind in those traumas around a, a blunt or a line of coke or methamphetamines or committing a crime or breaking a window and stealing a stereo out the car. They bind in these traumas. And before you know it, the little area where they were smoking weed, now they feel like that's their place of refuge, their sacred space. And, and now they become territorial. And before you know it, they're stealing to get money for their alcohol. They're stealing to get money for their marijuana. You know, they don't have any role models. They lack social capital. They don't have anybody coming in to intercede and show them a different way. And before you know it, now they're protective of this little area and they're a gang. And our society is looking at them like they're the scourge of humanity. But the fact of the matter is these were just a bunch of emotionally illiterate children that bonded in their traumas and they grew together. And I know this because I was one of them. You understand me? Most of the people I knew was one of them. My wife was one of them. Elijah is one of them. You know, and so I put that out there as an offering to the world, not only to better understand how people turn to criminal behavior, but also so we can eventually get the theory operationalized and recognized by the scientific community so that we can use it as the basis for new approaches to criminal justice and how we deal with people um, who will commit crimes and have it rooted in adverse childhood experiences and understanding, and not just from a social perspective, but also from a molecular perspective. Because when yes. people deal with trauma, they are they are molecular, they are changes, autonomic changes that occur at the molecular level that people are unaware of. And you can't even do anything about it initially. You know, you, you have nothing to do with, with your sympathetic or with your parasympathetic nervous system or sympathetic nervous system and fight or flight response always being turned on. And you have all of these stress hormones coursing through your body, the immunocorticotropics and epinephrine and cortisol. And you, you're making bad decisions. You can't focus. You can't think straight. Your, your health is all out of whack. You know what I'm saying? And it, and it leads to antisocial personality um, traits. And this is scientifically proven. But we'll use this, this, 
this science to talk about obesity. We use this science to talk about chronic illnesses, but we don't utilize this science to talk about how it contributes to people adopting criminality as a coping mechanism, you know, on so many levels. So the theory of emotional literacy based criminality is to is, is striving to to change the way that we approach dealing with crime. And when you talk about my wife and I, what makes our relationship so special is that how she said that I, I helped to heal her. She helped heals me also. We healing every day. And that is the secret ingredient of our relationship. We're bonding and healing. Yes. You dig? Yeah. That's the secret ingredient. That's the sauce. That's the yes. sauce. <laughs> We're bonding and healing. Whereas on the streets, and you know, when I was criminal minded or participating in criminal behavior, I bonded in traumas with those guys. But with my wife, yes. we bond in healing. And that's the adhesive that keeps us so close and tight, tightly knitted together and able to do what we do. Yes, please come in. Just a tad. Thank you. So um, I would like to kind of touch on uh, the theory, right, as well as uh, step inside the circle. So you may not know, but Samuel and I are actually executive producers alongside Fritzy Hortzman. I introduced Fritzy Hortzman and the Compassion Prison Project. Um, they were about 11 months old at the time. Um, and I had posted a poem that Samuel wrote called Stop. And uh, his friend Chris Saka had posted it on his website. And so I shared the poem and she was very interested and she reached out to me via messenger. We connected and I introduced her to Samuel. And so that is how Step Inside the Circle, Childhood Trauma Behind Bars and The Honor Yard actually came into fruition. It was through their meeting. She then went into the facility. She met with Samuel, attended his 10P class. Um, and, and then he, he went ahead and he assembled over 250 men, got all of the permissions, did all of the work from the inside, rehearsed the men. Um, and then she came in in February of 2020. And they they filmed Step Inside the Circle. And from that has been birthed, um, uh, what is it, the Honor, the Honor Yard, where he, he talks about the symptoms of trauma. Um, and it has been such a success that um, the governor of the state of California saw Samuel's plea for help for the people and reached out to Surgeon General Nadine Burke Harris um, and, and has started doing some of the work inside the prison as yeah, well. I and, called them both out by name. I said, Governor Newsom and Nadine Burke Harris, we need y'all help. So they, they answered and they came on, on, on the strength of me saying that and reaching out to them. And so the magic that you see on there is basically, yeah. you know, it's the Mankind Project. It's the Inside Circle Foundation because I'm part of the Inside yeah. Circle Foundation, which is a derivative of MKP, as we know. And so the work that we do in these healing circles, I promised that I would always carry that forward with me because that's what we do as initiates of these circles. And we know that that's our job. And so I have been doing this work inside of the prison when I was in Folsom. And when I transferred to the other prisons, I, I continue to do I continue to hold space for men and women. And anybody who needs someone to hold space for them. And in doing so, um, when my wife introduced um, Ms. Horseman to me, she had no action at getting inside of the prison, 
She didn't have the connections or anything. And because my program had been running successfully in CDC for seven, eight years now to this day, I had a good rapport with the wardens and the associate wardens and the deputy chief wardens and the captains. And, and on the strength of me and the program that I had been running, the 10P program, they gave her permission to come in and sit in my program and also film me doing a poem at the Pause for Life graduation where I was invited to spit the theory of emotional disease-based criminality. And so I went around yes. and I galvanized all of these men and asked them to participate in this circle. And based on the trust that they have for me and for the work mm-hmm. that I've been doing for years inside that prison, I was able to call out 250 men and bring them to the forefront to talk about their traumas based on the work that we do with the Inside Circle Foundation and Mankind Project and the magic that we bring. And so when she came and she captured it and she put it forward, you know, as if it was her work, you know what I'm saying? And it really wasn't. It, it's been heartbreaking, to be to be honest with you, because mm. she's taken it and built her entire organization off of it, you know, and basically left me out to dry. And that that sucks real poor bad. And I, I don't even want to continue to go there, but we I'm a, had to say that. And this is the first time we've actually said this in the interview. You know, but um, we have to be careful of people who utilize their platforms to take advantage of the vulnerable populations, mainly the the incarcerated, the marginalized, the oppressed, you know, the downtrodden. And that's basically what she did. You know, and if I may interject, as we talk about. As we talk about trauma, no, no, no. As we talk about trauma. Um, and yeah. we talk about systemic racism and as you heard him yes. talk about earlier, right, his his first experiences coming to California with white supremacy and, and, and whites in positions of power. Um, you can only imagine all the work that he has done, how re-injurious something of this magnitude could be. And so I'm just, I'm so grateful for him and his constant daily evolution that he has been able to continue to move and walk forward despite these things. But these are some of the things that, you know, a lot of people don't understand and why people like Samuel who possess just this amazing brilliance um, are oftentimes exploited um, for, for ill gain. And so, you know, again, we're just grateful and appreciative that, you know, we're here and able to share on your platform and that this is about educating and empowering the people and getting the healing to them that is needed and not exploitation. And so for that voice, and we thank you. You're very, you're welcome. And I'm honored and humbled. And I want to get to, so down below, you're going to see links. So we've heard a couple of things you've heard about the ASAP, which sounds stands for Anti-Violence Safety and Accountability Project. So there'll be links down below. There'll be a place for you to go and look at that. And then we need to get to something else here, which is to talk about ACA3. So bring us full, bring us full circle into adverse childhood experiences, trauma that we end up embedded in systems of oppression that then take that trauma and turn it into a system of modern day enslavement. So when you and I spoke before, we were talking about like the new Jim Crow and 
let's talk about how that gets systematized into things like the Constitution of California and the Constitution of the United States. So talk, sp speak to that. Sure. So here at ASAP, we talk about the Civil War. And so you have the popular narrative that is placed inside the history books. And then you have the actual narrative that you may have to get from a griot or somebody that's doing autodidactic studies, right? And so here, we we don't see the Civil War as a fight to liberate the enslaved, but rather as an antitrust suit that was litigated in blood on the battlefield. And the technology that was being warred over was slavery. Slavery was the latest technology, and the Southern states had a monopoly on it, and the other states wanted in. And so what we seen them do with the Civil War was not abolish slavery, but rather condition it on a socially constructed mechanism known as due process, which in essence expanded it to all 50 states and the Department of Corrections. All you needed was a corporation that contracted with the Department of Corrections of that state, and you now could employ slave labor. So in essence, they expanded it. And it was based on, it was conditioned on due process and a subsequent felony conviction. So they came with the 13th Amendment, which didn't abolish slavery, but rather reads slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited except as punishment for a crime. And you have that exclusionary language in almost every state constitution throughout the United States, California being no exception to the rule. And so Article 1, Section 6 of the California Constitution states the exact same thing that slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited except as punishment for a crime. And so in 1849, when California was suggested by the slaveholding states of the South to become a part of the Union, the whole purpose was to expand slaveholding territory. In 1850, when it was ratified, that was the purpose for California. Joining the Union was to expand slaveholding territory. Now in the year 2022, California is the premier plantation state with over 36 prison plantations, more than anyone, any, any, other, any other state in the nation. California led the way for mass incarceration with higher incarceration rates than any place in the world with the exception of China. So it was only second to an entire country. And it was fueled by laws that are directly correlated to, to, to Jim Crow, to black codes, and the same practices that they utilized um, during the post-Reconstruction era to fuel prison labor. And that was to create laws that decimated black communities and locked up the black body because they had more work inside of the prison than they did inside of their communities. Right. So today we find three strikes laws. We find the truth and sentencing law. We find life without the possibility of parole. We find the 10, 15, 20, 25 gun laws, you know, and all the and and. Is disproportionate sentencing, and they're mostly targeting people of color, communities of color, and they're snatching the resources from those communities, being the men and the women, and they're placing them inside of prisons where they all of a sudden have worth because now they can perform these tasks and these jobs that the private prison corporations um, and, and their benefactors contract with the state departments of corrections in order to fill their coffers. So when we're talking about involuntary servitude and what it looks like in the contemporary setting, we're talking about 
um, lens crafters. We're talking about license plates being uh, DMV, the the Department of uh, Bain- Health and Human Services, the Department of Transportation. <laughs> yeah. Oh my uh, God. Yeah, and and Cal and in California we have an entity called Calpia. Um, Cal- and Calpia has a board and their board is structured like a corporation. And whereas you heard Samuel talk about private industry, such as LensCrafter, here in California, Calpia's board is comprised of a number of members and one of the members is a chair. The chair of the board is appointed by the governor. The chair of the board is also the secretary of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And each member on that board is appointed by someone from California's state legislature, either the assembly side or the Senate side. So in California, it's a unique situation in that the state of California is in fact enslaving its own people. Then it also can only contract with other government entities, such as the Department of Transportation, the Department of Health and Human Services, so forth and so on. So in essence, um, our loved ones who are inside of these carceral settings are in fact employees of the state of California. However, upon their release, if they are ever released, they are not, they cannot go and get a government job because they have been deemed felons. Right. So that's the the twisted technical side of it. Now, let me give you the actual application of it so you can see what what it looks like in a contemporary setting. So how ACA3 came about is where we're headed, right? Yes. Um, Yes. It came about because I was employed as a healthcare facility maintenance worker, which is also known as environmental technician, which is fancy, fancy jargon for a hospital, hospital janitor. Right. As such, I was constantly on the front line of COVID-19 of the pandemic. And in the prison that I was in was the first what is where the first positive case of COVID took place inside a carceral setting. And who was tasked with sterilizing and disinfecting that first cell? Me. Everyone was terrified. Everyone was afraid. No one knew what to expect. I had read history books about the, the you know influenza 1919, so I knew it was real. I knew about the Black Plague and, and so forth and so on. So I was terrified, just like everyone else. And I did it. I went in there and I sterilized and, and uh, you know, sanitized the cell. And full hazmat, full hazmat, but terrified nonetheless. Yeah. And in doing so, it happened again and again and again as the cases begin to spread and, and the staff members continue to come inside sick and not wanting to stay home and they were infecting the prison population. So I told my supervisors, listen, I'm not going to continue to come to work every single day because I don't want to get sick. I'm asthmatic. I've had a collapsed lung and I have a high morbidity rate for COVID-19. So quite frankly, I'm not willing to die for the 35 cents that you paying me an hour, 35 cents an hour. Right. And they laughed initially. And once they seen that I was going to come every other day, then they told me I couldn't do that, that I had to report to work or I would receive a rules violation report, which is the modern day whip. That's the modern day whip that they use to compel performance from those who are enslaved on a on a on the modern day plantations. And so I am. Um, could not afford that because I was scheduled to appear before the Board of Parole hearings yes. to advocate for my release for the fifth time. Yes. Right. 
And I had to do it. And so with that modern day whip does the rules violation report, for those who don't know, if I were to receive that, that would at the minimum turn into a five year denial at the board of parole hearings, because there's an underground rule that they require you to stay disciplinary free, excuse me, for a minimum of five years. Now, that's not codified law. That's not any, it's not ratified. It's not approved. It's not above ground. It's an underground sanction that anyone that even thinks about being found suitable at the Board of Parole hearings must bring at least five years disciplinary free. So just one 115, one 128 is enough for them to deny you. And because of Marcy's law, another one of those laws I was speaking to you about earlier, Prop 9, I believe it was, if you're denied at the Board of Parole hearings, they have no choice but to give you a mandatory 15-year denial. That's where it starts at. Then, if there's mitigating factors, if there are mitigating factors, they walk it down to 10, and then from 10 to 7, from 7 to 5, from 5 to 3, and 3 is the lowest that they can go. So this is what they hold over your head and wield this whip, you know, and they wield this whip in this fashion to make you do what it is that they want you to do, because who wants to get a 15-year denial because I, I didn't want to go do this job that they wanted me to do, right? And then it's not even always about the job, Boyson, because you'll have many people who are listening right now who will say, well, they're in prison. They should work. But that's not what it's about. You know, um, I'll give you another example. If a person is convicted for vehicular manslaughter because they were under the influence and got behind the wheel of an automobile and accidentally took the life of someone, we as a society want them to go to prison so they can understand what led them to drinking, what led them to smoking or utilizing drugs and getting behind the wheel of a vehicle and act, uh, uh, ultimately taking the life of someone so that they can never do that again. You know, so they would never turn to such behavior or coping mechanisms again. However, that's theoretically and, you know, I, I, ideally that's what it would be. But in application, once a person is placed in prison, if they were in Narcotics Anonymous, if they were in Alcoholics Anonymous, if they were in the 10P program and it was a 12 month curriculum, they could be 10 months into the program. And if the prison decides that they want to snatch them out of the program to make them go rake leaves on the yard, to make them go wash dishes in the kitchen or pots and pans or mop the floor in a, in a, in a, in a, in a housing unit, they're going to take them out of the rehabilitative program and make them go do the slave job make them go do the slave labor. And if they get paid anything, it may be eight cents or nothing, you know? And then when they go to the board of parole hearings, the board of parole hearings will say, well, why didn't you take this class? Or why didn't you finish this class? And they'll say, well, they snatched me out of the class. And the board will say, well, we don't want to hear that. And then they'll get denied because they didn't get the rehabilitative um, teachings that they required or needed. And so that's not conducive to public safety. That's not best practice. That's not rehabilitation. So it's not really about working. It's actually a moral issue because slavery should not exist in any form in the year 2022. That's one. And then two, it's not conducive to public safety, period. Right now, the prison system is currently predicated upon anachronistic criminological concepts from, from a bygone classical era. We're still operating on principles and theories and, and, and criminological concepts that were created when the United States was not a melting pot. You understand what I'm saying? So it, it has no place in today's society. Um, it's like I said, it's a moral issue. And 
is counterproductive to healing the wounds and the traumas that people go inside the prison with. It's actually aggravating them more and then sending them back into society less prepared to deal with the stresses and the issues that they had before they went in. So if I can chime in here. So we are full swing. Right to ACA. Um, right to ACA. Yes, yes, there you go. We're in, we're in full swing of a pandemic. Um, and I am being told that my husband cannot refuse to go to work or he's going to get hit with this rules violation. Um, yes. And I was livid. And uh, he calls me a little honey badger, says I'm crazy enough to run up on anything. And I think that I am. So it's my baby. So I um, <laughs> at the time I was uh, we had just we had just formed uh, Abolish Slavery National Network. We are a national coalition that we currently have over 32 states on board. Uh, we are all seeking to remove um, involuntary servitude from our respective states' constitutions. In addition to that, we are also working with United States Senator Jeff Merkley and Congresswoman Nakima Williams on a federal resolution that they introduced uh, the same December that Sam introduced ACA3 and then reintroduced um, for Juneteenth of last year and he's got a unique story maybe he'll share with you about what happened for for juneteenth as well in this fight but um basically uh, i came to him and i said you know we're we're working with abolish slavery national network this is the work that we're doing right now around the country why don't you no actually i said i need you to write the bill for california and he's like Oh, baby, I don't know. I'm like, you going to write this bill because I know that you have the ability to do it. I need you to write this bill. And so he wrote something that was so comprehensive. Not only did she say, I need you to write it. She said, I need you to write it like yesterday. Right. Mm -hmm. So then he wrote this comprehensive piece of legislation. Um, I took it to, at the time, assembly member, um, Sidney Kamlager, and she looked at it and said, okay. If we try to push this thing through the way that it is written, we are going to, uh, in essence, be shot down before we can even get through the door because it was so comprehensive. And so she said, we're just going to tackle removing the language for now. And so uh, within, I think that was in like November, by December, she had authored it. Um, by January, we were full swing. We were building the coalition. Um and and here we are here we are today thank you there'll, there'll be links down below to uh the organizations just mentioned as well as to uh, another interview that talks about acao3 with some photos so you'll get to see more of jamelia uh with the aca3 bill so, so if what's, i can what's here real quick the, and, and interject of course this. of Samuel course has done an amazing job um from, you know, from press conferences, from the prison phone. Um, and, and I want to stress, you know, the resiliency here, right? And the, the tenacity that he has to, um, to be the voice for the people. Um, and during this process, um, he got a lot of pushback and he had false 115s written up against him just a month before he was going before the board. He was um, physically assaulted by an officer to the point where other men, 
you know, that normally would not speak out. We're speaking out saying, you know, when we saw what happened to him, we thought we were about to see another George Floyd. Um, and people don't know that, you know, from behind those walls, all this fight that he's done, that he has been willing to lay his life down for the people. And there was a point in time when I wasn't sure if I was going to see my husband alive on the other side of those walls, but yet he continued to fight. And so, you know, that is why I, I fight for him. Um, he is he is my champion. He is my hero. Um, and he is serious uh, about the work that he is doing and genuinely changing um, the overall infrastructure of us as a society, as, as us as a people. Right. Where we don't see one another um, as different ethnic groups or, you know, different socioeconomic or religious backgrounds that at the end of the day, if there's going to be a box that we check off uh, to identify ourselves, let's do it by blood type because we all fall under one or another. Thank you. So I'm going to go. This is going to be the last question. This is this has been powerful and intense. And I wish that you listeners were in the room to kind of hear it. And the the final question to both of you is, what's the world look like when when we're done with this work? Oh, man, this world looks like um, this world looks like our five year old daughter who asked the question, Daddy, does trauma know me? And we tell her no. May it be so. Samuel, what would you like to say to close us out? Well, I want to reiterate that um, ACA3, ending involuntary servitude and slavery, it's not a black issue. It's not a white issue. It's not, I mean, let's, let's not get it twisted. Though it does and has historically impacted and decimated the black community, it's yes. not exclusively a black issue. And as such, it's not something that can be solved exclusively by black people. Yes. This is a humanitarian issue. This is an wow. opportunity for us all to evolve in our shared humanity as a collective and demonstrate that we do have the capacity to change the world. It's our time. So if anything, that's that's what I will leave us with is this is an opportunity for you to be a part of something greater than yourself. This is an opportunity for me to be a part of something greater than myself and right and historical wrong that, you know, those those guys in the 39th Congress, they tried, but they didn't get the job done. So here we are, and we have an opportunity to eradicate the vestiges of slavery from our lot, from our lives and our constitution once and for all. You know, instead of tearing down statues, we need to tear down the statutes. And we have the ability to get that done here. So this is a call to arms for any and everyone who has a has it in their heart to to be a, a part of something greater to leave a better world for their children, for their grandchildren, and also to just, 
you know, feel like, you know what? I stood up. I stood for something. I didn't stand by and continue to watch it occur. I went out and voted. I told other people about it. I opened up my pockets. I gave some money if I had it. I did what I could, you know, because the prison system as it stands right now, Boyson, it's in desperate need of an overhaul. It needs to be overhauled. And as long as we have involuntary servitude in place, then the only people's needs that are being met are those who benefit financially from the snatching of the black bodies, just as they did back in the 1860s. And so we can change that. When people go to prison, it needs to be about citizenship training. It needs to be about teaching them what they didn't have prior to going to going to prison. It needs to be about engaging trauma. It needs to be about the theory of emotional illiteracy based criminality and understanding that prisoners are people and no one is born bad. And they're merely a reflection of society. So that is what I would like to leave us with. This is an opportunity for us to be evolved and our shared humanity as a collective. And I implore you to step up. We thank you for this opportunity. We love you. We love the work that you're doing. And a uh, piece of my brothers in the Mankind Project and all of the women that support them, just like my beautiful wife supports me. And with that, ASAP, we out. ASAP, we out. That's Samuel Nathaniel Brown and Jamelia Land. All of the links for ASAP and for the projects that we've been talking about and for ACA3 will be down below in the show notes. Samuel and Jamelia, thank you for spending this time. Thank you. Thank you, Boyson. God bless all your listeners. This has been another episode of the Mankind Podcast, produced in association with the Mankind Project USA. We have been your hosts, Paul Newell, Boyson Hodgson, and myself, Brandon Clift, and we want to thank our guests for joining us today and imparting their wisdom from their experiences in this amazing journey called life. If you want to find out more about today's guests and support them in their mission, you can find links to them in the show notes. Now, if you have found gold and insights that you believe could benefit your loved ones and those you care about, be sure to share it with them. And of course, we are always grateful for a rating and review of the show on iTunes. Now, we've got to give special thanks to our back-end team, producer, editor, and audio ninja for the show, Michael J. Russer, and Don Huff, who takes care of our graphics and promotions and pretty much makes us look pretty. So, of course, thank you, Don. Now, above all else, we've got to thank you, the listener. Because through your attention and your support, you have made it possible for us to let men all over the world know that they are not alone and that there is more than one way to be a man. And if something in this episode has touched you, then perhaps it is the call to action to get involved in men's work. With live trainings happening constantly and in-person trainings happening all over the world, the Mankind Project definitely has something for you. Now, if you've enjoyed the music in this episode and all of our episodes, be sure to check out Jim Donovan and the Sun King Warriors. I have links to them in the show notes. And lastly, just know what it means to me to be a man is completely different than what it means for you. What it means for Paul, what it means for Boyce, and that is the beauty of this journey. So if you are looking for guidance, support, and community as you begin to unpack and dive deeper into your men's work journey, then you know where to find us. Same place, same time 
next week. Lots of love. We'll see you then.